Well, good morning. Good to see you all. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm excited because today I get to open up the Word of God and proclaim His Word, His truths with you all, and that always gets me kind of fired up. But this is a difficult passage. There's a lot to untangle and a, a lot to discuss. So we're just going to jump right in. No dad jokes, no card tricks, nothing today. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to open your word, to be able to commune with you, to gather together with brothers and sisters, reflect upon who you are. God, I ask that you would, uh, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, and that we would remember what your Son, Jesus Christ, did for us and what he is doing for us every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, many years ago, some of you may remember that uh, Vince Lombardi coached the best football team that ever existed and probably ever will exist, the Green Bay Packers. For those of you that don't know, they were winning championship after championship, Super Bowl after Super Bowl. I mean, they were great. And what made them great was, was what he taught them. And what he taught them was that they needed to be unified on the field of battle. That they needed to act as one. And they all had different jobs, right? They weren't all doing the exact same thing. But, but he would practice them over and over again and run the same play until they got it absolutely perfect. Everybody working as one. And their entire playbook was built off of one play. It was the sweep. And for those of you that don't know much about sports, it's, a, it's just a simple run play. It's really simple. But when everybody is working as one and they were unified, it was nearly impossible to stop. That was one of the things that made them so good. Unity is really important for a group. It's vitally important. If you don't believe me yet, it's okay. We don't have to talk about Vince Lombardi. We can talk about uh, this great theologian that once wrote, I say to you all, once again, in the light of the enemy's return, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. The enemy's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Most of you probably know that that was the great theologian J.K. Rowling in her book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So maybe not a great theologian, I don't know, but she understood how important unity was when she wrote that. What about this great theologian? Jesus. Yeah, I'm making that transition real quick. Okay, uh, Jesus said this in uh, John chapter 17 in, in the high priestly prayer. This is moments before going to the cross. Hours, just, just a matter of hours before going to the cross, he is praying. What does he pray for? He prays for unity. Listen to this. I'm not praying only on their behalf. When he says that, he's talking about the disciples who are with him, that walked with him. I'm not only praying on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony. That they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me. And I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, 
so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Just a short little snapshot of that whole prayer and you see it repeated again and again. Jesus' desire that those who believe in him would be one, that they would be unified. It's extremely important for us and that's kind of what we're looking at today. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 21 where we see the early church and the unity of the body of Christ possibly being dashed upon the rocks. And we see how Paul and, and uh, the disciples handle it. You'll remember as you turn to Acts chapter 21 that just before this, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 15, but just before this, uh, Paul was, he, he's on his way to Jerusalem and, and uh, someone prophesies that that if he, if he goes, if he goes to Jerusalem and on to Rome, that, that he's going to be bound in chains, he's going to be arrested, bad things are going to happen. And, and, and people are asking him not to go. And of course, he, he prioritizes God's glory over, over his comfort, over things that are pleasant to him. He prioritizes God's glory and he says, I'm going. I'm going because of who Christ is, what he's done for me, and the message that I have to share. So he goes. And that's where we pick it up. And as we look at this chapter, this passage, Acts 21, 15 to 36, we're going to see how Paul deals with the law and liberty and how those work together. We'll also see the cost of unity. Law, liberty, and the cost of unity. Read with me verse 15 of chapter 21. After these days, we got ready and started up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea came along with us too and brought us to the house of Menason of Cyprus, a disciple from the earliest times, with whom we were to stay. And when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. So there's a, a, a joyful uh, you know, Christian brotherly love experience of, of welcoming Paul and the disciples that were traveling with him. And the next day, Paul went uh, with us to see James and all the elders were there. And James here is uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one that wrote the book of James. Uh, he's now the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. So James and the elders meet with them. And when Paul agreed to them, he began uh, to explain in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That God was saving the Gentiles. And they heard this, and they praised God. So this is great news. Everything's good. But here's where our passage starts to take a turn. Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all ardent observers of the law. They are zealous for the law. These are Jewish believers. They've placed their faith in Christ. But they are zealous for the law. And they've been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews now living among the Gentiles to abandon Moses. Now what does he mean there? He's talking about the Mosaic law. That these uh, Jewish believers have heard that, 
that Paul is teaching to abandon the Mosaic law. And that he's instructing them not to circumcise their children or live according to the customs of the Mosaic law. And then James and the elders say, what should we do? What should we do? You see, the problem is that um, in that that culture, for Paul to say, it's okay, we can just completely abandon the Mosaic law, that's that's a pretty hot-button issue. So they say, what, what should we do? They will no doubt hear that you've come. Verse 23, so do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may have their heads shaved. Okay, what are we talking about here? Well, there's four men, Jewish believers, that have taken a vow. Probably a Nazarite vow. If you remember from Acts chapter 18, Paul shaved his head. He also had taken a vow. But it was customary uh, for uh, like Paul coming back to Jerusalem to first purify himself before going to the temple. And, and then they're saying, hey, after you do this, go with these four, pay for their expenses, and uh, go, go through these, uh, these ceremonial um, proceedings to show that you're not against the law. To show that you are submitting to the law. So he does that. This is the first thing I want you to notice in this passage. Paul doesn't respond by saying, I'm not doing that. I have freedom in Christ. I don't have to go purify myself and submit myself to ceremonial law anymore. I'm not doing that. He doesn't do that. He submits himself to the law, and I want us to see that. It says, verse 26, Paul took the men the next day after he had purified himself along with them, He went to the temple and gave notice of the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be offered for each of them. So he he goes to the temple priest and he says, hey, this is about to happen. This is when we're going to come back to offer the proper sacrifices and pay. Um, And then uh, verse 27, when the seven days were almost over. That's the period of time that this was taking place. The Jews of the province of Asia who had seen him in the temple area stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this sanctuary, this temple. He teaches everyone everywhere against our people, the Jews, against our law, the Mosaic law, and this sanctuary, or this temple. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the inner courts of the temple and made this holy place ritually unclean. He's desecrated the temple by bringing Greeks into it. Now, why did they think that? Verse 29 tells us, For they had seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him previously, and they assumed Paul had brought him into the inner temple courts. Now, just a, a little bit so that you understand what's going on. The way the temple was set up is the, the outer area of the temple was the court of Gentiles. So Gentiles who believed in the one true God were able to come into the outer court and worship. Um, but there was about a three to four foot high stone wall that went around. And past that, only Jews were allowed. And on this stone wall, it was even written that uh, 
basically, if a Gentile were to, was to enter, their death was on their hands. They would be put to death for going past this wall, and it, and it was on them. That's what was written there. And this was so serious that Rome even allowed the Jews to put to death someone that crossed that, if they were a Gentile, even if they were a Roman citizen. That's a, that's a big deal in, in, in Roman culture. That's a, that's a big deal. And we'll see that later in the book of Acts when Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship. But for now, we have to ask ourselves, did Paul bring Greeks into the inner court? And did he teach that the Jews don't have to circumcise, they don't have to conform with the law or anything like that? Those are the two charges that are being brought. We have to ask if that's true, if these charges are true. And as you read through the New Testament, you're going to find, well, he does teach about conforming to the law and not having to be circumcised and things like that. But who is he talking to? He's actually talking to Gentile believers. See, there's a difference here. He never commands Jews who become believers to give up their old ways. He doesn't command that. He spurs them on to obedience and the love of Christ. There's a difference there. We have to keep reading a little bit. Um, it says, uh, we're going to back up, and, and you see that the instructions that the elders give here to the Gentiles, um, let's see here, verse 25, regarding the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter having decided that they should avoid uh, meat that has been sacrificed to idols and blood and uh, what has been strangled and sexual immorality. Okay, what's going on there? Well, you have to remember Acts chapter 15, there's the Jerusalem council. And what's happening is all, all these uh, Christian leaders are trying to figure out, what, what do we do? There's, there's this whole group of people that, that are coming to faith in Christ that, that don't have a background in Jewish law. And then you have a whole bunch of Jews come into faith in Christ, how do we put them together? Do, do we say all the, all the people that are, that are Gentiles coming to faith in Christ have to submit to the, to the law of Moses? Do we say that, that no one has to submit anymore? What do we do? And, and uh, the Jerusalem Council was primarily about that. And essentially what they said was, no, like we're not going to make them submit to the uh, Mosaic law, but you know, there are some things that they need to understand, right? We're, we're going to abstain from sexual immorality, uh, that they shouldn't eat meat, meat, sacrificed idols, and things like that. It's just a restatement. That's what James and the elders are saying here. And so you see that there is this division that's kind of there. People understanding how these two groups of people go together as one. And it, it becomes difficult when you think about, so this group is going to observe the law, but this group isn't, and, and what's required, it becomes difficult. And so much of Paul's writing in the New Testament is really about the law and liberty and how we are to live in Christ as one. So we see that these accusations are brought against Paul, and then in verse 30, the whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple courts, and immediately the doors were shut. And before we continue, I want to take a moment to talk about the law and freedom in Christ. What does the law do? When we know the law doesn't save, 
The law cannot save you. The law cannot save you in God's eyes. That's not the purpose of the law. Well, why do I say that? Well, Scripture says that, for one. But if you think about laws, how do they operate? Let's say you're driving along, speed limit's 60, so you're going 59.9, observing the law perfectly. How many times have you been pulled over by a police officer and congratulated for observing the law? I heard a zero. Maybe somebody said one, but I think they're just messing with me. Yeah, you don't get pulled over and said, hey, great job, good job obeying the law. That doesn't happen. Because that's not why the law is there. The law is not there to, to show you, that, like to help congratulate you for, for doing good. It's actually there to place a restriction, right? You can go up to this, but if you step over that, the law is going to condemn you. And then you're going to get pulled over, depending upon how many parking tickets you have. I don't know, maybe you get arrested. But the law is there to place a restriction. What other way does the law function? Well, the Mosaic law is meant to function like a mirror. It's meant to function like a mirror. You hold up a mirror in the morning, you know what I'm talking about. You all look beautiful, everything looks great, right? So you probably got in front of a mirror this morning. You're like, oh, I should probably shave a little bit. I need that eye cream. I need a good haircut, brush my teeth, make sure my tie is straight. No one's wearing a tie in here, that's all right. But the mirror shows you who you are. It shows you your flaws. And it's meant to reflect who God is. That's what the Mosaic Law does. It says, God is this. God is so high. You can't reach Him. In fact, Old Testament uh, law was used uh, with words that conveyed this idea of a target. Like hitting a target with an arrow. And then Paul picks this up when he says in Romans chapter 3 that we all fall short of the glory of God. That language is about uh, someone taking aim, trying to hit the target, loosing their arrow, and falling short. No matter what, no matter, they can keep trying to aim differently, they're always going to fall short. We will always fall short. So the law functions like a restriction, it functions like a mirror, but it doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. It's only the grace of God that saves us. So, let's talk about freedom for a second. What does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to have liberty? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does that mean? You know, uh, the video that was played, I, I, look at, I look at that woman that said um, what was happening in her life, and it was freedom that showed her that God was good. Isn't that amazing? And freedom in Christ is not being subject to the law. It's also freedom from the power of sin. and openness to the grace of God. And it's that grace that shows us that he is good. Because of freedom in Christ, Paul is able to write in Romans chapter 8 that there, there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No condemnation. I guarantee you all of us have not 100% observed the Mosaic Law. None of us have been able to do that. And yet Paul's able to write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life-giving Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He compares the Mosaic law to a law of sin and death. Why? Because that's, that's all it can ever bring. It can't bring you salvation. It cannot bring you life. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, He condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's a whole sermon just in itself. There's so much there. But we got to move and I went over a little bit last time so I'm going to try to keep it up. I promise. I promise, Jason. Okay. Um, so what is the law of the Spirit in Christ or the law of sin and death? What is the law of the Spirit in Christ and what is the law of sin and death that's being talked about here? Well, we already talked about law of sin and death as being compared to the Mosaic law. Okay? The law of sin and death, I think about like the law of gravity. Okay? Law of gravity, it's a constant. It exists. If you jump, you're going to come back down, Right? What goes up must come down. It, it just exists. You can't escape it. No matter how hard you try on your own, you're never going to be able to, to live up past the law of gravity. And I look at the law of uh, the life-giving spirit in Jesus Christ, like Paul talks about here, as kind of the law of like aerodynamics in an airplane. See, gravity's still going, right? But, but you get to fly along and cruise along. That's what the indwelling of the Spirit is like. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit, you now have the power to get some thrust and some speed. You got a whole new law at work, the law of aerodynamics, right? Thrust, weight, drag, and lift. Some of you aerodynamics nerds know what I'm talking about. Oh, I said nerds from the pulpit. <laughs> I did not mean to do that. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole new set of laws. The law of gravity is still going. It's a constant, right? But when you've got the Holy Spirit, you're living in a whole new way. And you can soar. You can soar high above everything. That's the law of Christ. Now, um, I also want to point this out. What is Paul doing with his interaction with people with the law? I'm going to take just a little snapshot of what he writes about to talk about his interaction here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Since I'm free from all, I can make myself a slave to all, okay? In order to gain even more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. This is the Mosaic law here. 
to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, in order to gain those who are under the law. Okay? I think I'm tracking with you, Paul, but sometimes when you write, it's kind of hard to understand. I'm going to keep reading. To those free from the law, I became like one free from the law, though I am not free from God's law. Hold on, Paul. You just told me that you are not under the law. Well, he says, though I'm not free from God's law, but under the law of Christ. All right, so we've got the Mosaic law and now the law of Christ, which is comparable to like the law of the Spirit that we talked about earlier. To gain those free from the law, that's why he does these things. To the weak I became weak in order to gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I may save some. That's the phrase that we usually latch on to. That's the, that's the good phrase that we, that, that we like to repeat, that, that people will um, remember, that Paul became all things to all people so that by all means he may save some. But the context of that phrase is between the law and freedom. He behaved like one under the law so that he could reach those were observing the Mosaic law. And he also behaved like one not under the law, even though he was under the law of Christ. Man, this is a lot. All right, we got a little bit more. What is the law of Christ? We have to ask ourselves that. And this is actually really important, right? Because if if we say, well, if you're in Christ, you're, you're not under any law, then it's possible that you might think, well, I can do as I please. I can just do whatever I want. And if that's what you think, you have to read Romans chapter 6. And I encourage all of you to read Romans chapter 6. I actually encourage all of you to read the whole book of Romans because it's a really good book. But Romans chapter 6, later today, tonight, before you go to bed, read Romans 6. And in Romans 6, he says, all right, so if we're under grace, if we're not under the law, should we just keep on sinning? To which he says, may it never be. May it never be. If you like the New American Standard Bible translation. Or meganoita, if you're a Dallas grad like Joe. That's that's the Greek translation. That word is the strongest way to say no in the Greek language. In other words, if you are under grace and if you are a believer here in Christ today, then you are under grace. So does that mean you just live your life however you want and do whatever you want? If Paul was here and was speaking English, he would be like, no, that's not right. So there is some type of moral law upon us even though we have freedom in Christ. And that would be the law of Christ. So what's the law of Christ? Well, it's referenced one other time in the New Testament. But it's not really defined. And most Bible teachers point to what Christ says is the greatest commandment. You guys remember? When Christ, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto itself to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. To love God with all that you are and to love people. So there is something for us to do. 
Freedom in Christ means not being bound by 613. That's how many Old Testament uh, Mosaic laws there are. 613 rules to be keeping, to try to keep up with. Freedom in Christ means I get to live my life freely and live for God and love him with all that I am and love people. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And John says in 1 John, for the love of God is this, that we keep his commandments. All right. So there's still stuff to do, even though we have freedom in Christ. Now, I want to talk about a couple of principles for unity. And I am watching the clock. Principles for unity. From this passage, because there's a lot of principles for unity in the New Testament. So I have to keep it nice and concise here. How do we live with this freedom in Christ? How do we promote unity as one body of believers in Christ? Here's here's how we're going to do it, and we can see it from this passage. First, avoid rumors. Two rumors were brought against Paul. Right? That he was teaching something that he actually wasn't teaching. And that he had brought Greeks into the inner court of the temple, which actually didn't happen. So avoid rumors. The other thing is this. I don't, I don't see anywhere in the text where anybody went to Paul and said, hey, can we, can we have a talk? Can we clarify some of the things that you're teaching? Can we just talk about some things? It doesn't say that anybody did that. Maybe somebody did, but it doesn't say that. I think that's important for us as a body of believers with unity, that we talk to one another, that we understand where people are coming from. But those aren't the most important principles from this. And for those of you note-takers, I'm going to say this next one twice because it's a little wordy, but it's the best I could do. I'm not perfect. The next principle is this, that we need to understand cultural expressions of faith in Christ. And we adjust our interactions to include limiting our own freedom for the good of others. Say it again. Not everybody here is a note taker. I can tell because you're all staring at me. That's okay. Some people are, so I'm going to say it again. Understand cultural expressions of faith in Christ. And adjust our interactions to include limiting our own freedom for the good of others. What does that look like? Well, we see that Paul says that he became like one under the law to reach those who are under the law and became like one not under the law to reach those who are not under the law. So he's, he's changing a little bit about how he interacts in different contexts. So if you are worshiping somewhere and uh, you're going there for the first time and it, maybe it's a Lutheran church. I grew up Lutheran and... and Earlier in my life, I, I wanted to buck some of their liturgical practices, you know, like the, the stand up, sit down, say this, say that, that type of thing. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. I didn't really like that early on in my life, but as I've grown uh, uh, more and more in my walk with Christ, sometimes I miss some of it. Sometimes I miss some of it. There's, there's something really amazing about, um, about rhythms that teach us about our faith. But I'm not going to go into that because that's another long uh, segment. So uh, m- maybe you're somewhere where you're going to worship uh, at a Lutheran church. And uh, 
and they, they flip down the little, uh, the, the kneeling posts that are cushioned sometimes, hopefully they're cushioned, you know, and everybody kneels down at, at the appropriate moment when they're instructed to, to begin to pray. I, it would be, it would be wrong for you to stand up and be like, I'm not kneeling down to pray. I'm free in Christ, and I'm going to exercise my freedom to now stand up and tell you all about how you don't have to do a certain thing to be able to commune with God. You see, oh, that feels like, oh, that's, that feels really wrong, right? For, first of all, it's just rude. But, but also, like, man, you were not showing love towards those people. Who are, who are choosing to express their faith in Christ in a particular way. Does that make sense? A better way to, to show them love would be to limit your own freedom in that moment. Now, I'm not talking about doctrinal disputes. If there is something wrong with a doctrine, you don't go, well, I'm just going to submit to terrible doctrine to show love. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about a different cultural expression in faith in Christ. A lot of times, preferences are applied to this type of thing. Well, I don't like this type of music, or I don't like this, or he stands behind a pulpit, I want somebody that sits in a chair and looks all cool. You know, like, there's, there's a lot of different things like that, like preferences about church. And that there certainly is a part of that where we need to consider our own preferences and maybe... Uh, limit that so that we could be one in Christ, so that we could worship together as one. But I think this goes way beyond just preferences. It really does go to expressions of faith. It's not wrong for Jewish believers to still do things according to the law. As long as they're not trying to observe the law in order to gain salvation. That's what Paul's main argument is. There was a, a, another, I was, I was deployed in Alaska, and I wanted to go worship with a, a, a brother of mine, and, uh, and so we looked up what time the contemporary service is, because I got to have my drums and stuff like that, uh, even though I just said preferences don't matter. But, uh, so I looked up what time the contemporary service is, and uh, we went at that time, only what we didn't know was that they had switched the services that day, I don't know why, and we walked in and uh, sat down, and it, I mean, you could almost hear like the record coming off, like it was like, you know, and everybody started to turn around and like look at us like we had like three heads, you know, and we quickly realized that, oh, we, I don't think we're in the right place. Like this is wrong, and we slowly start to back out, and that's when we realized that we were in the Catholic service, and there was a big bowl of water that we just like walked right by, you know what I'm saying? And sat down. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not here to say, like, you know, hey, go to a Catholic church and observe Catholic doctrine. I, that's not what I'm saying. Well, but it would be wrong of me in that moment to have been like, I have freedom in Christ. I don't need to dip my hand in this bowl of water and, and, and do all these things to be able to commune with God. You, you see what I'm saying? Okay, all right, I'll leave it at that. There's so much that I have left to talk about. I'm so sorry. Here we go. Um, so, we see the law. And we see liberty. We kind of see how that's going to play out. We see that 
that Paul walks that line. And the reason he walks that line is for the unity of the body of believers. But look at what the cost is of unity. Look at what it ends up costing him. Verse 31. They take him outside, and while they were trying to kill him, this group of Jews is trying to kill him. A report gets sent up to the commanding officer of the cohort that all Jerusalem is in confusion. He immediately took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd. And when they saw the commanding officer and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's nice of them to stop, you know. And then the commanding officer came up and arrested him and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he's done. So he's just grabbing a hold of Paul, arrests him because there's clearly a disturbance. Okay, now that I've got him apprehended, what did he do? Somebody tell me what he did because I've got him arrested. That's the scene here, right? But some in the crowd shouted one thing and others something else. So again, we see that mob rule is just confusion. Nobody really understands exactly what's going on. And when the commanding officer was unable to find out the truth because of the disturbance, he ordered Paul to be brought to the barracks. And the violence was so much, it says, that the soldiers had to lift him up and carry him up the steps because they were trying to get at him so much. Because he was teaching that new believers, Gentile believers, don't have to obey the Mosaic law. And that got confused. And freedom in Christ looks like this, and, and that got confused. And it just created a massive amount of violence. And, and the people began screaming at him, away with him, away with him. And if you remember, it wasn't too many years earlier, not too far away from this spot on the temple, that the Jewish people were screaming, away with him, away with him. And they were screaming it about Jesus. Here we see the picture kind of the final rejection of the message of grace, the message of Christ. This is, this is the last time in the book of Acts that we see Jerusalem. It's the last time in the book of Acts that we see the temple. And it's sad. It's sad. I never want to see someone miss out on the grace of God. When we interact with people, we need to be thinking about unity among the body of Christ. We need to avoid rumors. We need to not badmouth each other. But beyond that, we need to understand different expressions of faith, and we need to be able to limit our freedom when appropriate for the good of others. That's what Romans 14 is all about. If you haven't read that, please do it tonight when you read the whole book of Romans, especially focusing on chapters 6 and 14. There's just so much that we have to cover here. But I want to say this. Um, seeing how Paul limits his freedom, uh, one, 
One commentator um, who's a pastor in Sri Lanka, he said this. He said, uh, it shows us how serious Paul was about preserving unity in the body of Christ. He was willing to do everything possible to please Christians who were different from him. This perspective needs emphasis in an age where individualism, like Steve mentioned earlier, has hit the church so hard that even church splits are being viewed as a desirable means for church growth. This surely is an expression of worldliness in this age where the supposed quest for self-fulfillment has devalued the importance of lasting commitments and where because of the pragmatic attitude, growth at, cost, at the cost of another is regarded as acceptable. The body of Christ is meant to be unified. One, not divided. And we see Paul desiring that so much that he limits his own freedom. And we see what the cost is. It's going to be hard to live according to the law of Christ. To love God with all that you are and to love others. But at the same time, it calls us to lean more into the Spirit and to the grace of God, which is actually quite an easy thing to do. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your son. Thank you for, for providing a way to know you, to love you, to be with you. God, I know I can't live up to all of those laws. No one can. So I thank you for showing us the grace that we need. Oh God, I just ask that you would help us. Help us to be able to be a people that values unity. That we would uh, think carefully about matters of law and liberty. That we would read your word to know more. In Jesus' name.